All right, would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for your word as it has been written, as we've heard it read. Now we pray your blessing over this time as we hear your word taught and proclaimed. Sometimes we come here and we don't really know what we want to hear. What we hope to hear, though, are your words of life that speak to us where we are, that challenge us, that point our hearts outward toward our community, toward the world that you love, the world that you died to save. And whether we're ready for that or not, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move us toward increasingly being a people who bend the knee in opportunity to serve and to love others, just as these women did in this wonderful story from your scriptures. Bless us now, speak, so that we might hear and give us hearts that are willing to move in new directions through your grace. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we've got a special uh, treat today, I think. Uh, Today is a little bit different type of sermon. Uh, Denise Lindbergh is going to join me up here, so I'm going to invite Denise to come up here. Some of you know Denise. She and her husband Eric have been coming here to Bethany for a little while now. Their son Joshua is also part of Team Lindbergh, and they've got a new baby Lindbergh coming real soon. So all of you just like stand in awe of someone preaching and like delivering God's word in the midst of pregnancy. It's incredible. Denise serves on the children's ministry team. Eric helps on the AV team. Joshua helps whatever team he's on that Sunday. Denise is a graduate of Fuller Seminary, the greatest seminary in the world. She also has a background in engineering, so she speaks engineer for all of you engineers in the room. And what we're going to do today is kind of share the teaching. So I'll introduce uh, where we're going. Denise will come up and uh, handle kind of the middle sections, and then I'll come up at the end. There will be many groans as I come up at the end, because we're going to want Denise just to keep going. And then uh, we will wrap up our time together at the table. Today's teaching focuses on Mary Magdalene, and to clarify at the top, Mary, this Mary is not the same Mary as the mother of Jesus. This is a different person. The primary text that we're going to be looking at is the one we had read for us in Luke 8, so if you kind of want to put your finger in the Bible in those different places. And one of the things that Mary's story shows us, this is kind of our thesis, if you want to write this down, this will guide how we walk through the text this morning, is when we feel powerless, God calls us to have the courage to be present. When we feel powerless, God calls us to have the courage to be present. And if you're like me, you go, okay, well, what do we mean when we say present? What does that even mean? Well, that's where I'm going to hand it off to Denise. So would you join me in welcoming Denise Lindbergh? Well, good morning, y'all. Did you catch that? That was me helping you transition from Travis. That was like a little bit of Texan. Oh, thank you. Don't worry, I'm done. So uh, I'll just repeat what Travis already said, just because it's important. Um, Excuse me, the main truth that we're going to pull from the passage today is that when we feel powerless, God calls us to to have the courage to be present. And if you look in your notes, you'll see that there's kind of four different ideas that we're going to explore under that category. Um, And the four things that we're going to see are sort of gifts of grace that Mary receives because she is present. So we'll see that because she's present, she's transformed. Because she's present, she's able to minister. Because she's present, she's able to understand. And then finally, because Mary is present, God's story of redemption moves forward. 
So those are our four key ideas. But like Travis said, first we need to figure out what it means to be present. And in order to do that, I thought I'd tell you a couple of stories. So the first story is about a friend of mine that was a childhood friend who was diagnosed with leukemia when we were in college. And I was so sad when I found out the news, and and my heart ached for her, and I was scared for her, and I wanted so badly to make it better, and I felt powerless. I didn't know what to do or what to say. I wanted to write or call or be present, but I was so afraid that I would make things worse that I just didn't do anything. I just sort of disappeared, and and I wasn't there for her. And she eventually recovered, but I think I will always regret that I wasn't present for her during that season. The second story is about one of my best friends today. Uh, A few years ago, she was diagnosed with uh, MS, and so she's been dealing with a lot of pain and fatigue. She's slowly losing her mobility. And this past August, on top of all that, she gave birth to a little boy who had a genetic disorder. And so he lived for about an hour. And I am so sad for her. And I ache for her, and I'm scared for her. And I want so badly to make it better. And I still feel powerless. But the difference between the last story and this one is that I'm trying to be there. Most of the time, I have no idea what she needs. I wonder if I'm just going to make things worse, but I call and I check in and I try to visit and I choose to show up in her life. And when I'm there, I just try to be honest. And I'm not always good at it, but I think that what I'm learning and I think that what Mary is teaching us is that that's what it means to be present. doesn't mean that we have all the answers, that we know what we're doing or we get it absolutely right. It means we show up. We go to the place where God is, where the need is, and then when we're there, we just tell the truth about the reality around us. And you know what? Sometimes that truth-telling is saying, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't understand what you're experiencing I don't know, but I'm going to be here. And I'm not going to disengage, and I'm not going to dismiss or try to reason away what you're experiencing. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to tell the truth. And I think that that's what Mary does so well in our passage today. Because she's a woman who has every reason to feel powerless. She lives in this world that has very little regard for what women have to say. She's a Jew in a world ruled by Romans. She's a follower of a man who's being executed as a criminal. And there's no reason for her to expect that she has any power to influence the world around her. And yet because she's present, because she chooses again and again to show up and tell the truth about what she experiences, all sorts of things happen. And I think there's some grace for us today in that message because there are so many things that I can't do. So many things that I'm afraid to do. So many questions that cross my mind when I think about taking a risk in obedience to Jesus. I so often feel 
powerless in this big and scary and sometimes really dark world. But when I think about doing just those two things, showing up, telling the truth, being present, that, that I can do. So let's dig into Mary's story, and we're going to look first at that first idea that Mary, by being present, is, a, is transformed. Now, before we explore this idea, we need a little bit of context. So I'm going to read uh, the passage that Travis referred to in uh, chapter 8, just verses 1 through 3. This is kind of how Luke introduces Mary. So soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, we have to kind of make a point of clarification here because in chapter 7, Luke tells us about the, the, he calls her the sinful woman with the alabaster jar who anoints Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. And a lot of scholars have tried to connect that woman with Mary. I think just because it's such a beautiful story and it kind of provides a backstory for her. But if you read the text carefully, um, there's really no reason to think that Luke intended for those to be the same people. It actually looks more like he's introducing a new woman here in chapter 8. So that's what we're going to assume today, that this is a different person. And so what we do know about Mary is not a lot, but we know that she's been healed by Jesus. We're told that seven demons have gone out from her, and we don't really know what that means, but we can make some educated guesses because we've seen uh, unclean spirits other places in the Gospels. So generally, in the gospel narratives, a person who possesses an unclean spirit has some sort of physical or psychological illness. So, for example, blindness or seizures or uh, uncontrollable acts of self-harm. And the reference to seven there doesn't necessarily mean that there's seven distinct spirits. It's probably just a way of saying that whatever Mary is experiencing is very severe. Uh, But either way, we know that Mary experienced some sort of spiritual ailment, and it had a really big impact on her. And we know this because in addition to whatever physical or psychological illness she would have experienced, as a Jewish person, she would have also been marginalized within her community because she would have been unclean. So she would have been excluded from pretty much any communal activity. And now this marginalization is existing on top of what she already would have experienced just by virtue of being a woman. As a woman in a Jewish culture, she would have been sort of relegated to the margins. We know from historians, in fact, that early um, Jewish women wouldn't have even been considered uh, witnesses whose testimony was admissible in court. They weren't considered reliable enough. And so... This woman, already on the outskirts, dealing with these unclean spirits, when she first encounters Jesus, is very much living in a state of isolation and brokenness. And though we don't know what her healing looks like, we know that as a consequence of being with Jesus, she is radically transformed. 
She moves from a place of illness to health, from a place of marginalization to belonging, from a place of spiritual uncleanliness to a place of significance. In fact, every single gospel mentions her by name and usually first among a list of a bunch of different women. So there's some reason to believe that she was actually sort of a leader of this group of women. And this woman who once was insignificant, who once couldn't even give witness in court, eventually is going to become one of the first witnesses to the resurrection. Mary encounters Jesus in this place of brokenness, and she's radically transformed just by being present with him. And I think it's important to note here that the transformation comes first. Before she's with Jesus at his crucifixion, before the tomb, before she sees the resurrection, she herself is transformed by the grace of God. And that transformation is a direct result of being with Jesus. Which moves us to our second point. So first, after she's transformed by being in the presence of Jesus, being with Jesus allows Mary to minister. And there's something unique, I think, about the way that Mary and the women approach Jesus in his final hours. If you read Luke's narrative, everywhere else, when people come to Jesus, they want something, right? They want healing, or they want to see a miracle, or they have questions and they need them answered. And Mary and the women are the only people who come to Jesus to give. They come to minister And there's something really beautiful about that because their ministry comes at this point of profound powerlessness. Right? Here's Jesus being hung on the cross and there's mobs of people around and the religious leaders are sort of nodding their assent. And this small group of women whose voices would mean nothing in this world, these inconsequential Jews from a fishing village, do the one thing they can do. They choose to be present. And that might be one of the most profound gifts that they can give to Jesus in that moment. When uh, Eric and I first moved up here, I served as a chaplain at uh, University of Washington and at Harborview Medical Center. And one of the things that just amazed me about Harborview is a program there called uh, No One Dies Alone, or NODA. And the program is basically a a group of volunteers who also happen to be staff at the hospital. And they come in during their time off, and they just sit with people who are dying and don't have friends or family nearby. And they don't provide any sort of medical care. They might, like, read or play music or something, but mostly it's just a matter of being there and holding a hand and letting someone know that they're not alone. That is an incredibly hard thing to do. It's so hard to show up in the presence of pain and grief and death and just be. Most of us, I think, when we go into those places, we want to have a plan. right? We bring flowers or we bring a card or we come with something wise to say. Or my favorite resort is humor. Anything that will sort of Occupy the time. Because if we do something, we can distance ourselves from that feeling of powerlessness. 
But sometimes there's nothing left to do. Sometimes what's needed is just to sit, to be present, to share in the pain of another by choosing to be there. And it's incredibly hard to do. It takes so much courage to walk into that room, but when it happens, it's sacred. And it's beautiful, and it's ministry. And that's what the women do. They show up. They choose to be present with Jesus in this moment of suffering, and simply by being there, they minister to him. Luke tells us that they stood at a distance. So I don't know how well they could see Jesus and how well Jesus could see them, but I like to imagine that it meant something to him that in this moment of supreme isolation, the small group of courageous women were there choosing to be present and offering him the only ministry that they could. And even after his death, they don't leave his side. The men are kind of missing from the story, but the women follow, and they see where he's buried, and they make spices, and they get up early in the morning to anoint his body to minister to him even in death. Now today, we don't have that opportunity. We, we don't get to anoint Jesus' body for good reason. He's no longer dead, so that's great. Uh, but the call to minister, I don't think, has changed. One of Jesus' last teachings was when he taught his disciples that in clothing the naked and feeding the hungry, they'd be ministering to Jesus himself. And I think in the absence of Jesus' physical presence, that, that call remains, right? We get to continue the work of the women at the tomb and minister to the Jesus among us by doing those things. But you'll notice clothing the naked and feeding the hungry, those are not things that you can do from a distance, you have to show up first. The first step, the thing that allows us to minister is choosing to be present. So a good question to ask yourself is, what does that look like for you? How could you be more present with the people to whom God is calling you to minister? Where do you need to show up? Because ministry begins there. It begins with being present. Okay, so Mary and Wither have shown us that being present allows them and it allows us to minister. And the next thing they teach us is that being present also allows us to understand. One of the things that you see throughout Luke's gospel is the disciples' continual inability to understand the crucifixion. We see in uh, chapter 9, Jesus tells them he's going to be arrested and handed over to men, and they don't understand and then in 18, he says, I'm going to be arrested and flogged and executed. And Luke tells us that the disciples understood literally none. He says they understood none of this. Um, and then even after Jesus' crucifixion, they still not, are not able to connect the dots. They don't understand. The breakthrough comes at the tomb. These men talk to the women and they say, remember Jesus' words. And they do. And the implication here is not merely that they remember what Jesus said, but that they begin to understand. There's that first hint, finally, that the followers of Jesus are beginning to make sense of what they've been told. 
And there's likely uh, an intended parallel here between the women remembering and Peter remembering. If you'll recall earlier in the story, Jesus pulls Peter aside and says, you know, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter being Peter says, no, no, I'll follow you to prison and to death. And then goes on to deny Jesus three times. And um, the rooster crows. And then the gospels tell us, tell us that Peter remembered Jesus' words. And the remembering is a moment of clarity. He begins to understand something about himself and his own weakness, something that he couldn't recognize before. There's a, a revelation, a new insight. And in the same way, when the women remember Jesus' words, there's a revelation. They understand something new. And they may not understand everything, but they understand enough to go tell the rest of the disciples. And again, these are women who didn't get it right at first. They came looking for Jesus' body, so they weren't expecting a resurrection. In fact, the first words from the angels are words of rebuke. They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, you missed the point. You're in the wrong spot. Why are you looking for Jesus here? You're getting it wrong. But because they choose to be there, because they choose to go where they expect to find Jesus, even though they get it wrong, they receive this divine message that allows them to begin to move from confusion to clarity. Because they choose to be present, they begin to understand. And I think there's something particularly about, important about this piece for us in the church today because I think the church in America is a very comfortable place sometimes. We're pretty good at reading the Bible and we worship and we know things about God, but often it seems what's missing is a willingness to follow Jesus into places of discomfort. We want to be at Jesus' feet when he's feeding 5,000, and we want to watch him heal, but very few of us want to follow him to the cross or to the tomb because those places are scary. They make us feel small. They make us feel powerless. But when I think about the people of faith whom I most admire, the people who really get grace, who understand the gospel, the people for whom Jesus is, is really alive, most often those are the people who followed him into uncomfortable places. Some of the chaplains that I met when I worked at Harborview were those people. And I've met some amazing missionaries who are those people. And I've met far num more people who are not in vocational ministry and embody this profound understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done just because they choose to be present with him in dark and scary and uncomfortable places. And I'd really like to be more specific about what those uncomfortable places are, but I think maybe the calling is a little bit different for everyone. For some of us, it's being with someone in need, someone sick or someone suffering or someone dealing with mental illness. For some of us, it's a place of intimacy, of being real with someone else, of even sharing something with our family members or choosing to be in a small group. For some of us, it might be about being less in control, giving more of our time and our resources, going somewhere where we're uncomfortable into a culture or, or a community that we don't understand. 
I don't know what it looks like for you. But I think if there's something on your heart that scares you a little bit, a place you don't want to go or a thing you don't want to do or a person you're trying to avoid, that might be something worth examining. You might find that choosing to be present with Jesus in that place reveals something that you need to understand. It takes courage to be present. Showing up with Jesus in places of discomfort and being truthful in that reality, that's difficult. But I think Mary reminds us that having the courage to be present, even if you get it wrong, even if you show up in the wrong spot, just the choosing to be present can profoundly change what you know about that powerful God who calls you there. Okay, so we got one more lesson, and I'm going to let Travis take it from here. Thanks, Denise. Okay, quick review. Being present, show up, tell the truth about the reality around us. I love how you phrase that, Denise. And this allows us to be transformed, to minister, to understand. And finally, we're going to talk about how being present allows God's story of redemption to move forward, that there's still stuff to be done. If you still have your Bibles open, turn with me to Luke 24 again. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. This is right after the passage that says, and they understood, and they remembered. Returning from the tomb, they, the women, told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home amazed at what had happened. So what's going on here? The women have really encountered this incredible source of fuel and energy in verse 8, where they understand, where something is connected. Like Denise said, they're kind of transformed in that moment. The resurrection has happened, and so this, this then is the fulcrum of all of history. Everything else that happens before this moment gets its own timestamp, and everything afterwards gets a different timestamp. It's amazing. And who are the people entrusted with talking about this? Who are the people that are given the responsibility of sharing this with the world in ways that make sense to their neighbors? It's these women. And all they're doing really is continuing what they've been doing, just in a different form. They are still telling the truth. They're still doing ministry, but it takes on a different shape. A lot of you uh, may be familiar with this, but in the ancient Near East, in the time of Jesus' day, this was not a time when lots of things were written down. It was starting to become a more written culture, but it had long been an oral tradition, an oral culture, and lots of cultures are this way, right? You tell stories, you pass on the stories of your ancestors and traditions face-to-face, and this shift is occurring here for the people of God because Yahweh, God, began to write down things for his people. He began to write down the Ten Commandments. The people began to take a page out of that playbook. The power of God, the accounts of God caring for people and sending them in the right direction need to be transferred generation to generation. So stuff starts to get written down. And that's more what we're used to, right? That's how we arrive at our day of sending emails and texts and all these kind of things. This is how we pass on information. But there's one thing that's so strong both in Jesus' culture, the culture of Mary Magdalene and these women, and in our culture. And it's this. People remember stories. 
Can you say that with me? People remember stories. They do. I have a friend that works in communications. He says that's like his number one principle about how to invite people to step into things, how to get a message out. People remember stories. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've heard this before, but I'll say it again. The most effective way to share your faith with someone, to tell them about the good news that you've received in Jesus Christ, is just to tell a story to tell something that is remarkable and profound in your life and invite someone to step into that and paint that picture for them in as good a way as you know how. It doesn't have to be masterful. It doesn't have to be the most incredibly orchestrated, built-out thing. It just needs to be something that has been true in your life, a reality that you know through Jesus Christ. And you can tell any kind of story. You can tell a story about how God has been at work on a mission trip, how he's brought healing into your family how you've seen him at work in your kid's school. Tell a story and let that be one of the ways that you step into the courageous calling that Denise is talking about. People remember stories. These women will never forget the story that they tell of the resurrection. They will never forget it. And what's the first thing that they run into as they tell their story? It's not a warm and receptive audience. It's not people taking notes and cheering. It's a bunch of guys who don't really get it. Do not be discouraged, Bethany, if you take your story to someone and you are met with indifference or you are met even with a rebuke or a reproof that you weren't planning on. Do not be discouraged because people remember stories. And this story does inspire one guy, right? Peter takes off. He starts running. And actually, he never stops running after this. If you follow Peter's trajectory throughout the history of the church, he is one of the key leaders of building up the church after the resurrection. Even a guy as goofy and as impetuous and as human as Peter, his story, the story he has heard from these women that he carries forth, it is still powerful. Do not be discouraged. If you have shared your story and you thought it fell on deaf ears, don't give up. People remember stories. And proclamation isn't just through words, it's through actions as well. So we can move the ball forward in God's story of redemption, not just by telling stories or by writing stories or any of these kinds of things. It's also being able to enact and animate the truth of what we've received from Jesus Christ. And the women in our text today, near as we can tell, we think they continue to do this kind of ministry. We think they continue to do this work in some way, shape, or form. Whether they keep serving the disciples or whether they keep moving forward as leaders in the church, we don't know. But it's not like after Jesus' resurrection, they went, oh, well, time to go work for UPS. Like, we don't have anything else to do. They continue in this mighty work of loving and serving others through simple acts of kindness. How many times has your life been transformed by a simple act of kindness? Someone showing up and being present with you at work, bringing you a cup of coffee when you've had a terrible day. These are not trite, nice things. These are things that can be presented in such a way where we can show the love of Christ powerfully by just being intentional. What if your simple action of love this week inspires someone like Peter was inspired? What if it changes the trajectory of somebody's life? Do you believe that that could happen? I believe it absolutely can happen through each and every one of us. Consider this week, how are you being called in your workplace, in your kids' school, in your family, in your neighborhood? How are you being called to take on these simple acts of love and service for the sake of others? And keeping in mind, too, that one of the keys to this is the community around you. If you've got a team with you, you can do anything, right? So Mary has this team of women with her. We think she may have been the leader of this team. When you're discouraged, 
when you don't feel like things are moving forward and you look around at the people who are doing the work with you, that's powerful. That's encouraging. I was talking with a friend this week. Uh, she has a coworker who has been sick. He's been going through chemotherapy. And as all of you know, that just takes your legs out from under you. And you can't be as strong as you'd like. You can't do a lot of things that you'd love to do. And so this woman and a couple of the other people from her office have been kind of checking in on this guy, caring for him, kind of helping him get to his appointments, that sort of thing. Really beautiful thing that they're doing. And so she's talking with this man who's going through chemotherapy, and they're back at his house. She's taken him to some appointment, and he looks at his yard, right? And those of us that have yards right now, we can all relate to this. He looks at his yard, and it's just overgrown, and, you know, everything's out of control, right? And he just kind of goes, oh. I wish I could do something about my yard. And in that moment, my friend realized, here's an amazing opportunity to do something very simple, seemingly small, to step in and care for someone just by getting your hands dirty in their yard. So this friend of mine is going to talk to her small group about taking care of this guy's yard, just going to help. I was with another one of our small groups this week, and one of the guys in this group was saying, you know, We've been trying to find a way to serve in our community, and there are these City of Kirkland baseball fields right near our house, and they just need some TLC. Like, they're just, they're not up to, up to speed. There's, you know, dirt and grass growing and all this kind of stuff. So that group is going to try to find a way to address the needs of that baseball field. And who cares if they ever get any credit for it? This is the way that Jesus is moving just in our community, just through a couple of our small groups, to bring people out into the world to bless and serve others. It's inspiring me to think about my own neighborhood. I have a ton of wonderful, sweet elderly folks in my neighborhood who just can't get out and do their yard work anymore. And so I've started to pray for an opportunity just to meet one of these folks and say, hey, could my church come help? Could my family and I come help? Many of you know that we've partnered with Jubilee Reach to help bless and serve schools in Bellevue for a couple years. We're going to do that again this year. Jubilee Reach Serve Day is coming up in August. We're also going to try to serve at a Title I school, a lower resource school, right here in Lake Washington Schools around the same time. So at the end of August, you'll be hearing more about it. And our goal in that is simply to help schools become stronger because those are our schools. Those are the kids that we are called to serve and the families that we belong to in our wider community. Now, one of the challenges in any message like this and anything that we kind of hope to get people out and start doing stuff is, is it can, if you're like me, it can very quickly become kind of nebulous. Like, okay, I think I'm sort of mildly inspired to go do something. What, what really would make this effectual? And so I want to offer for us as we uh, prepare our hearts to come to the table a chance to reflect on a few questions. So, Jesse, can we put those questions up, please? And I'll read through these, and I, I want to challenge us to fill in these blanks. And as Denise and I were kind of kicking these back and forth to one another, we both realized this is kind of uncomfortable to think about these things. But if we really want this message to connect with the heart, I want to encourage all of us to take a moment and just consider these things together. So if you want to write them down, you're welcome to write them down. If you want to just listen as I read through them, you can reflect silently. And we'll do this quietly for a few minutes. I'll invite the band to come up and then... We will, join ourselves, we will join with Jesus Christ at his table. So listen to these considerations. God, I think you're inviting me to this uncomfortable place. I want to name it, and I am afraid of it. God, I feel like you want me to be with someone, a person or a group of people, and I'm afraid of that. So what concrete steps, God, would you have me take 
to be present there. Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, we know that we are called to more than just comfort and safety. We can so easily become enamored of the many, many gifts you've given to us. The freedom to worship you, the ability to have jobs, to have friends, families, to belong to a neighborhood. And yet, we know those things aren't just given to us. Those things are entrusted to us. Those relationships are handed over to us by your grace for a purpose. And as we consider these questions, as we come now to the table to be at a meal with you, we ask that you would inspire our imaginations to bless and serve our community, not to do stuff, not to fill up our calendars, not to add one more thing, but to be about the one thing, about your resurrection, about the power to be transformed, how you showed through this group of women, through the leadership of Mary Magdalene, that being present is so powerful. And our world longs for the good news of the gospel to come through the people who know the presence of Christ and can reveal it in tangible ways, in ways that make sense to our neighbors and to our friends and to our coworkers. So help us, inspire us. In these moments, as we get ready to come to the table, would you give us just a few moments of silence to reflect, to hold out to you our places of brokenness as we offer up to you the things we cannot fix about ourselves and our world. May you minister to us in our broken places. Hear us as we confess silently. Father, we thank you that you hear us when we confess, when we offer to you these dark corners of our hearts and our souls. And we thank you that we don't even have to come to the table to receive your forgiveness. We can receive it right where we are. So thank you, Jesus, for giving us the gift of forgiveness through your life and your death and your resurrection. And now we pray that you would set apart this time, set apart these elements of bread and juice so that we might receive something powerful in these moments together at the table. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.